Christmas will be here before you know it. So now is the time to prepare your heart with a timeless devotional written by Dr. David Jeremiah called Season of Joy. Enter the Christmas season with restored hope, resounding joy, reassuring peace, and renewed faith. This inspirational book is yours for a gift of any amount in support of Turning Point. And for a gift of $100 or more, you'll receive a four-pack to share the season of joy with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. With the rapture just a tick of the prophetic time clock away, now is not the time to be distracted by the allure of the world. It's time for godly focus. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to Romans 13 for more of the Apostle Paul's advice on how to live in these last days. Wrapping up his series, The Great Disappearance, here's David with the conclusion of Live Like You Were Dying. Well, I love Pausha's book, and as you know, it sold 10 million copies because people wanted to read what this man thought. He was asked to give a message before he knew he was sick on what his last message would be if he knew he were going to die. And then after he was asked to do that, he got pancreatic cancer and literally had to give a message on the subject, and and it wasn't as if it were happening. It was happening to him, and he died a few months later. The book took off because people want to know, what do folks think about when they know that the end is near? And the Bible tells us it's important for us to think about that, too. We should think about the things that are going to matter the most if Jesus should come tomorrow and then live like we were dying. And I think part of that is also a sense of urgency. Um, I believe that when you know something like that is going to happen, you have a sense of urgency, things you need to get done, things you know you can't put off any longer. Maybe that's you. I hope the end of this message will nail it for you and get you where you need to be, and you can start living like you're dying. Here's part two. If you're a Christian, you still have the old nature and you need to put off the darkness. You know, there's no such thing as darkness. Did you know that? Darkness is just the description of the absence of light. There's no such commodity as darkness. All darkness is, is a place where there's no light. When light comes, darkness goes away. And then that helps us to understand his next comment. He says, put off the darkness and put on the light. Paul's second command is even more positive. When we are told to put on the light, he is using the New Testament picture for walking in fellowship with Jesus. John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You know, I often pray at the end of the services on Sunday before we leave the building, a prayer something like this, Lord, help us to take the influence of Jesus with us this week, wherever we go. We have to make sure that we understand that wherever we go, we're to take the light of Jesus. We're to take the gospel that we have in our spirit, and we're to make that a part of that. I had breakfast with Pastor Tim from the church here in New York. And you know what? The guy who waited on us, he asked this guy, do you go to church? He says, well, no, he says, I'm kind of Muslim. He says, I don't go to church much. He said, well, you should come to church. 
He said, my church is right over here. I'll tell you what, if you come to church, I'll make the tip a lot bigger. And when we got done, the guy came up to me and said, I'll see you in church on Sunday. (laughs) You know, that used to be kind of a common thing. You know what? We've gotten away from that. We don't have any boldness now about bringing Jesus into our situation. And Paul said, because Jesus is coming back, get off your hands, quit being so cautious, and take some chances for the Lord. Ask some people if they know Jesus. We're to watch vigilantly. He's coming back. We're to war valiantly against the evil in our system and live in the light, not in the darkness. Here's the third thing. We're to walk virtuously. Let us walk properly, verse 13 says, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And I hate to tell you this, but these words were addressed to Christians. He's not writing this to pagans. He's writing this to the Roman Christians. And he's saying to them, don't do these six things. These six listed sins here fall into two categories. The first three have to do with public disgrace, revelry, drunkenness, lewdness. And the last three have to do with sins that can hide in the human heart before they are manifest in the light of day. All of them are understood to be sins of the night and opposed to what you are as a Christian. The things that he lists in this paragraph have no place in the life of a Christian. And you know what? We're living in a time when that's kind of not really understood. I preach on stewardship every year during the month of January. And I don't really care too much what people think about it. I just do it. I try to tell them I'm going to make something that's threatening, thrilling. And I do. I try to teach them what a joy it is to give to the Lord and encourage them if they haven't been tithing, to tithe. So this last year, there's a little restaurant not around the corner from our church. I sometimes go in there for coffee in the morning and I walk in and I'll be honest with you, I don't sit in a booth because if I do, people come and sit in the booth and I can't eat my breakfast and they talk to them. I sit at the counter because you're just one-on-one with the counter. No, you're not. I went in and sat down by this couple, and the guy, when I sat down, he said, Pastor Jeremiah, we're so glad you came. We got some questions. <laughs> it's Monday morning. I just preached three sermons. I'm tired. I don't have time for, okay, whatever it is. And he wanted to know something about tithing, and he started to talk to me. There was a woman there with him, and he said, we have a lot of questions we're trying to sort through. We're thinking about getting married. I don't even know why I said that. I said, well, you probably should because more than likely you're living together, right? And he goes, oh my, yeah. (laughs) I said, well, let me tell you something. Tithing is important, but you need to get married and then start tithing. And he just looked at me like, are you kidding me? And we had an event at our church about a month later where we all were outside and everybody was out there in fellowship. And they came up to Donna and me And all he said was, Pastor, I got married and we're tithing. (laughs) Here's the deal, you guys. We can't play around with this like we have in the past. We can't just say, well, maybe they'll get it right. We have to be willing to call things out when we see them that are wrong. We don't need to be mean-spirited about it. But if you have people that you know who aren't Christians and they want to be included in the fellowship of the saints... 
They need to get their act together. They need to start living for God. What fellowship does light have with darkness? None. We can't make an impact on this dark world if we're as dark as the world is. And so you got to win them to something. Amen. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. We are not. We're of the light. So reject public sins. Reject revelry and drunkenness and lewdness. There used to be a day when if you were a Christian, it meant something. I know there's a whole issue about, you know, lists of things. The dirty dozen, the terrible ten, nasty nine, all the things you're not supposed to do, you know. I grew up in a kind of environment where that was true. But we've swung the pendulum clear to the other end. We're not against anything anymore. You can be in many churches and just live like you never changed a thing when you became a Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible calls us to holiness. It calls us to a certain way to walk, a certain way to live. We're not only to reject public sins, but we're to renounce the private ones as well. And then Paul says to these Christians, watch vigilantly, war valiantly, walk virtuously, and wait victoriously. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Are you listening to this message? Are you thinking that Paul's explanations and expectations are unreasonable? That the things he asked us to do are not possible? The strength is through the Spirit of God and the strategies in the Word of God. Once we determine to live in light of our Lord's return, we can have confidence in our life. You can't have confidence if you're always making concessions to the enemy. Oh, well, they won't understand. Well, that's all right. They don't have to understand. You know what we've learned as Christians over the years? My children went to secular schools. David played football at a Christian school, and then he played football at a secular junior college. And my son Daniel played in secular schools. And they were always the brunt of criticism. I don't even want to tell you in a public meeting like that some of the things they endured because they were believers. But you know what? When the people who criticized them got in any kind of trouble, those were the first people they wanted to talk to. Isn't that interesting? When they see that you've got the guts to live a different kind of life and you don't party like everybody else. I mean, my son went to a school where most people came to the game and got drunk outside and never went to the game. Everybody drank. He played in an all-star game in Hawaii. And on the way home, everybody on the plane got drunk except him. Even the coaches were drinking. What do you do when you do that? You just stand up and be who you are and don't be ashamed. Walk with God. Walk with honesty. Walk in integrity. So listen. Listen to how Paul concludes this lesson. He says, put on Christ. He tells us that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you do that? What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, let me tell you what Ray Stedman said about this. He's an old professor of mine who's in heaven now. But this is what he said. 
When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be a part of me all day, to go where I go and do what I do. They cover me. They make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you wake up in the morning. Make him part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. Put on Christ. Every day when you get up, you put him on. You say, today, Lord, you and I are going into this dark world and we're going to make a difference with the people we are around. We're going to show people the influence of Jesus Christ. Amen. And then I love this one because this is so practical. We are to make no provision for the flesh. That means we're not to allow ourselves any possibility to gratify our desires. Believers who have been saved out of addictive lifestyles should weigh carefully Paul's words here. The strategy for victory is to avoid the situations that enabled your addiction. Don't put yourself in places where you'll be tempted. Be ruthless in putting those old habits to death. Do it pointedly, do it piteously, and do it permanently. Do not plan for sin. Don't give it any welcome. Don't offer it any opportunity. Kick the sin off your doorstep and it won't get in your house. Amen. There's an old saying that goes like this. Call upon God and roll away from the rocks. The idea is to put yourself in the best situation to succeed and move as far away as possible from the place of failure. Now I want to tell you a story. There was this middle-aged man who was considerably overweight, and he was addicted to donuts. Dunkin' Donuts was his favorite place. Every day he would buy donuts and not just eat one or two, he would eat a lot of them. And he decided through his doctor's counsel that he needed to quit doing that. So he got off of donuts, and he started to lose weight, and he's looking good. Everybody was so proud of him. One day they went to work, and he's sitting in the rec room at his work, and he's got a box of donuts in there, and he's eating the donuts. And his buddies went in, hey, what happened to you, man? You off the wagon? He said, no. He said, this morning when I was having my prayer time, I told the Lord I had this kind of hunger for a donut, and if I drove by the donut shop and there was a parking place in front of the donut shop, that that would be his will for me to eat a donut. And he said, sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there it was. What was he doing? He was making provision for the flesh, wasn't he? If you're falling in a hole on the same street every day, you probably want to try another street. I know people that say, well, I get into the internet and all of a sudden, well, stay off the internet. You know, there is life outside of the internet. Did you know that? So all I can say to you people is that we should not allow the enemy to set us up for failure. That's what we do. I remember one time as a little boy, I don't know why I remember this, probably because my parents reminded me of it a lot when I was younger, but we used to go to a cottage when I was living in Toledo, Ohio, in a place called Petoskey, Michigan. There was a woman up there who had a beautiful home. We'd go up there. And one day I was up there with my parents and the rest of the family went someplace, I think to the grocery store, and my mother said to me, whatever you do, David, you stay away from the lake. I don't want you messing around down by the lake. I don't want you down there when nobody's here, so don't go near the water. 
So guess what I did? <laughs> I went down and I was kind of looking. I think I was trying to catch some fish off the dock and I fell in. And before I could get back to the cabin, my parents returned and my mom was furious. She said, what in the world are you doing? And she told me, I don't remember saying this. She said, I said, it was an accident. She said, well, you got a swimming suit on. What do you mean it's an accident? <laughs> she told me I said this, that I said to her, well, I just took the swimming suit in case I got tempted. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Don't put yourself in a place to be tempted. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to make a difference, if you realize Jesus is coming back and you don't want to be embarrassed when he comes back, live your life in such a way that you will be proud to meet him when he comes because you'll be walking in the light. I read a book about habits, and this isn't even Christian, but listen to this. This is pretty close to scriptural truth. He said, every environment promotes some behaviors and prevents others. The key is to be in an environment that supports the results you want to achieve. The people and the places that surround us fill our days with little cues and triggers that can make our habits easier to follow or harder to build. Are you fighting your environment to make change happen, or does your environment make your new behavior effortless? If you're struggling with something that's getting you, even as a Christian, and you're finding that you're not living victoriously and you're letting the devil get an advantage, maybe you should change your environment. Maybe you should get with different people. If you're with people who do the things you used to do and you're trying not to do them, you are playing a game you can't win. The influence of so many peers on you will destroy you. This is really serious. I had a conversation with a guy who was going through some issues. He's a Christian. He came to see me and he was telling me he was having trouble because the woman who worked at the desk next to him in his office he was being drawn to her and tempted to have an affair with her and she to him. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do, Pastor. I don't want to do this and I'm afraid I'm going to do it. He said, what should I do? I said, you need to get another job. He said, what? He said, I can't quit my job. I said, well, if you don't quit your job, you're going to quit your marriage. He said, are you serious? I said, absolutely serious. You know what the Bible tells you to do with sexual temptation? to run away from it. It says flee it. Twice it says that in the Bible. So if you think you're strong enough to stand up to that temptation day after day after day, you have a little fight at home, what's going to happen? He said, you really think I should get it? I said, either you get another job or make sure she gets one. <laughs> because you can't be in the same environment if you want to be victorious. If you're having that kind of pull already and you're just in the beginning of this relationship you are going to be a casualty what i told him was the truth you don't set yourself up by failure by staying in an environment that encourages you to do wrong you get in an environment you find friends small groups are a part of that that encourage you to do right and help you lift up your spirit and lift up your life just knowing that will help you. I'll never forget the first time I saw the film, The Passion of the Christ. Our staff at Shadow Mountain attended a premiere in Dallas. And like most of the people at that time, we had heard publicly some of the controversy about the film. And we didn't know what to expect. So we 
actually flew from San Diego and we went to Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas for the premiere of that film. It was just a movie. And we'd seen any number of other movies about Jesus. But I never saw a film like that. Not even close. We sat and watched a bloody, gory, graphic depiction of everything Jesus endured for our sake. And as we returned to California on the airplane, there was silence. Nobody said a word all the way home. Each of us with our own private reflections and occasionally the sound of some emotion or people in tears. My own prayer was, and I'll never forget it, was this. Lord, help me to live my life from this moment onward in such a way that I never do anything to hurt you or break your heart, not after what you've done for me. That should be something of our prayer. That's the power of the cross. When we become Christians, Christ comes to live in us, and we learn to be uncomfortable with everything that grieves him. Just knowing, really knowing that Christ lives in you is the greatest motivation toward godliness that you ever have. So in many ways, that knowing is the key to victory and spiritual challenge beneath that core. The epic war movie Saving Private Ryan tells the story of a rescue mission centering on young Private James Ryan during World War II. Most of you have seen it. When a senior official in Washington, D.C. learns that three of James' brothers were killed in action, he orders a special mission to bring the young man home to his mother, the last of her sons. Unfortunately, James' unit is missing in action somewhere in France. So Captain John Miller is tasked with assembling a squad and finding Private Ryan, a mission he accomplishes. But when young Private Ryan refuses to abandon his fellow soldiers, Captain Miller and his squad are forced to defend him in the middle of a terrible battle against the enemy. James Ryan survives this battle but Captain Miller and most of his squad are killed. You remember the movie. At the end of the film, a mortally wounded Captain Miller pulls the stunned private forward and says with his final breath, James, you earn this. You earn it with your life. And the scene flashes forward to the present where James Francis Ryan, now in his 80s, is paying homage to Captain Miller's grave at Omaha Beach in Normandy. Overcome with emotion, perhaps some guilt, James speaks to the grave marker as if he's addressing Captain Miller and the rest, and he says, I hope I've earned what all of you have done for me. Of course, no one could ever merit such a great sacrifice, no matter what they did. Nobody could earn it. Thankfully, no gift is ever earned, especially the gift of eternal life. That's the truth about salvation. We cannot earn our salvation either before or after. There's nothing you could ever do to pay God back for the sacrifice he made for you through the death of his son. But here's what the Bible says. In Ephesians 4.1, it says, Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life that's worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. Think often about his death and his sacrifice for you and pray the prayer that I prayed. Lord, I don't want to ever do anything to hurt your life, hurt your heart after what you've done for me. I'm sure I will do it because I'm a sinful creature. But that's the message I want to leave with you. 
because of what Jesus has done for us and because he's coming back one day to get us in the rapture, let's avoid anything that will sully the splendor of that whole event. As followers of Christ, let us be alert and watchful and vigilant with one on the headlines and the other on the eastern skies and let us learn to live like we were dying because one day Jesus is coming to get us. Can it get a witness? Amen. Folks, you want to get this series not only in book form, but you can get all of the audio recordings as well. The CD package is available, um, and if you don't have that, you should order it. And then let me ask you, to you take this series to the next level. You get the book, you get the study guides, you get the CDs, and have a small group study. Did you know that 13,000 churches signed up to do that at the beginning of this study. If you weren't among them, you can still do it. You can still study this material, and uh, you know how powerful it is if you've been listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this, and don't forget to listen on Monday and Tuesday for a reprise of my my interview with uh, Sheila Walsh, one of the most uh, listened to and responded to programs we've ever done. And uh, be sure and join us over the weekend on television. Have a great weekend, friends. See you next time. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Great Disappearance, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new hardcover book, The Great Disappearance. 31 Ways to Be Rapture Ready. Informative and inspiring. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as Sheila Walsh and Dr. Jeremiah share an encore presentation of The Great Disappearance on Turning Point. If you want to learn more about the person of Jesus Christ, the book of Colossians offers an unrivaled portrayal of our Savior. And to help you understand this important book in a deeper way, Dr. David Jeremiah has created a verse-by-verse study called Christ Above All. This helpful book and album are yours when you donate $60 to Turning Point. And with an $80 gift, you'll also receive the Written Word Journal. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. If you're looking to enhance your personal or group Bible study, look no further than the Jeremiah Bible Study Series. In each volume, Dr. David Jeremiah helps you understand what the Bible says and how to apply it. Along the way, you will gain insights into the text, identify key themes, and be challenged to apply the truth found in Scripture to your life. Get your copy today. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca study. That's davidjeremiah.ca study. I have heard it said that people never really agree with opinions expressed by others. They only agree with their own opinion when it happens to be expressed by another person. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? I hope I'm more open-minded than that. 
I won't waver on what the Bible says, but in other matters I hope I'll always value the wisdom and opinions of other people. Such an attitude begins with what James wrote in his letter, be quick to hear, be willing to listen to others. If I believe God is at work in other people, then I believe He can speak to me through them. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's ways to learn and grow on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.